Hey, folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. In this episode, we are concluding our series in the book of Leviticus with James Jordan. Here, Jordan is going to be in Leviticus chapters 23 to 27 in a talk called Into the Future. We hope you are sharpened and encouraged by this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan concluding his short series on the book of Leviticus. We come now finally to the last two sections of the book of Leviticus, both of which are somewhat shorter and less complicated than the material we've looked at thus far, although there's plenty of unfamiliar stuff here as well. The fourth section of the book of Leviticus dealing with sanctions is, I believe, chapter 23, having to do with Sabbaths, corresponding to the fourth commandment. And then chapters 24 to the end, I believe, as original outline shows, can be broken into five sections and have to do with the succession arrangements, sort of a a review of history and passing into the future. So let's plunge right in with chapter 23 that has to do with Sabbaths. Now, this chapter has five speeches in it, but the five speeches don't quite fit the covenant model. On the other hand, these five speeches deal with six distinct topics. And if we group the last two then we come up with five sections that do square very nicely again with the covenant recreation model. If you look at your chart, you'll find that verses 1 through 3 have to do with Sabbath, and that is the affirmation of God's sovereignty, his presence, and our fealty. Then comes Passover, which is in the same speech, but is clearly a different topic. And there we have an affirmation of the deliverance, that God wrought for Israel, and has to do with the second aspect of the recreation covenant model. Then we have first fruits, giving to God what is his, distribution. We have trumpets, which have to do with judgment. And then we have the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles. That's two separate speeches, but they both have to do with succession. And the last point of the covenant, succession and artistic enhancements and festivity. So... I think that without a great deal of difficulty, we can see the same basic literary structuring pattern here as we've seen throughout the rest of the book. Now, looking at the notes, we have, first of all, the Sabbath, the Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. My appointed times are these, verse 3, for six days work may be done, but on the seventh there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. One of the abiding errors and mistaken ideas that floats around the church is that in the Old Testament, people didn't meet together for worship on the Sabbath. They just rested. In the New Testament, we meet for worship on the Lord's Day, but in the Old Testament, they just worshipped at the festivals and they didn't worship on the Sabbath. This verse completely contradicts that. It says there's to be a holy convocation every Sabbath day. And this means, secondly, against another popular myth, that the synagogue existed from the beginning. Seminary students are routinely told that Ezra invented the synagogue after the people came back from exile. That's not true. Ezra may have had something to do with restructuring and formalizing certain things about the synagogue, but the synagogue itself existed from the earliest times. The Levites were scattered in the towns of Israel as local pastors, and the people met together every Sabbath day and on every new moon for non-sacramental worship, to be instructed in the law of God 
than to render prayers. The proof text in the New Testament for this, this is sufficient right here. There was a holy convocation, but if you want another verse, you could jot down Acts chapter 15, verse 21. Acts 15, 21 says, Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So from the time of Moses, there were synagogues, and the people gathered for worship on the Sabbath. Well, that is the first requirement, that the people gather before God's face and bow before him on the Sabbath and affirm his primacy. Then we have the Passover, verses 4 and following. These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And then, on the 15th day of the same month, there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread. Well, that celebrates the departure from Egypt. And then we have the laws for that. On the first day you have a holy convocation. You don't do any laborious work. For seven days you present a food offering to the Lord. Offering by fire is a mistranslation. Food offering. And on the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. Now, since uh, you have a Sabbath on the first and seventh day, sometime during that week you're going to have another Sabbath. And the regular weekly Sabbath will show up. And that's important for us to note because it has to do with first fruits. Verses 9 through 22 have to do with first fruit offerings. The first sheaf is offered during the Passover feast or during Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the first loaf or first loaves are offered at Pentecost. Let's look at the first sheaf. Verse 10. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land that I am going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, Passover will wave it. Now this is the Sabbath during the Passover week. And then it talks about other things that are supposed to be done. And then we have the first loaf offered at Pentecost. Verse 15, you shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a lifted offering. Wave offerings, mistranslation, this is something lifted up to God and then received back. And it tells what they're to be made of and other things that are to be done. Well, this is fulfilled in the New Testament. Let me point this out. The Sabbath after Passover was the Saturday that Jesus was in the tomb. And so the next day, Sunday of the resurrection, was the day in which the first sheaf was offered. And Jesus' resurrection is that first sheaf offering. Then 49 days after that, or 50 days after the Sabbath, comes Pentecost and the waving of the first loaf. This corresponds to Jesus' Two givings of the Holy Spirit. In John, Jesus appeared to the disciples on Sunday night and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then, 49 days later, at Pentecost, the Spirit came in power. So, we can see how this anticipates the work and offering resurrections of Jesus Christ as he is springing from the ground as the first fruits and then as he brings his church cemented together as loaves and waves them to the Lord as the offering at Pentecost. Well, then we have the Feast of Trumpets. 
It says in verse 24, in the seventh month, on the first of the month, you will have a rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. Don't do any laborious work and present a food offering to the Lord. That's all that's said here. Other verses show us that there were rests at the beginning of every month, not just the seventh month, and so forth. But this is particularly noted here. Trumpets have to do with sanctions in the book of Revelation. The trumpet section is the fourth section. And so that's the way it structures into the passage. Then we have the last two things here. The Day of Atonement on the tenth day of the seventh month. We've looked at the Day of Atonement in chapter 16 and what its purpose was. Here they were told not to do any work but to fast that day. This is the one required day of fasting in the Old Covenant. And they were to humble their soul, it says, basically not eat and reflect on their sins on this most important day for that purpose. And then, after reflecting on their sins, they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. The idea is from humility to joy, and we have the Feast of Tabernacles, or Feast of Booths, coming a few days later on the 15th of the 7th month. This was the greatest feast in Israel. It lasted eight days. It had many different meanings. For one thing, it celebrated the Jews' departure from Egypt, just as Passover did. It says, verse 42, You will live in booths for seven days. All the native-born in Israel shall live in tabernacles, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in tabernacles when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. So it remembers that, but if we were to look over at the book of Numbers, we would find that 70 bulls are sacrificed at the Feast of Tabernacles, and that represents the 70 nations of the world. So it's also a time in which Israel's ministry as priest of the nations is highlighted. But particularly since it lasts eight days and the people are supposed to take palm branches and other leafy boughs and make little tents or booths or tabernacles and dwell in them, this is obviously a great festive time. Deuteronomy 14 says, Turn your tithe in at this time, and before you pay your tithe, you can use part of it to celebrate at the feast. You can buy wine or strong drink or sheep or anything that you want to eat. Whatever your heart desires, eat it and enjoy it at the feast. So that's what Feast of Tabernacles is, and it, of course, is ultimately a picture of our heavenly rest in God that the work of the Day of Atonement provides for us. Jesus provides it. Well, that's what Leviticus 23 is about. It's about the various Sabbaths and festivals of Israel. Now let's look, finally, at the theme of succession, chapters 24 to 27, in going into the future. And you'll find that you have a chart there as well, setting out the five sections as they relate to the covenant recreation model. The lampstand and showbread are discussed in the first speech, chapter 24, 1 through 9. And as I'll argue in a moment, these, I believe, are symbols of heaven and earth and emphasize transcendence and eminence and connect with Genesis chapter 1, the creation of the world. Then we have following immediately upon that in chapter 24, verses 10 to 12, an historical incident involving the judgment of God against an Egyptian for blasphemy. I believe that this is placed here, happened here in the providence of God, to recall the exodus from Egypt. And thus again, we've gone from the creation of the world to the exodus from Egypt. At any rate, as an historical incident, it fits in the second aspect of the recreation covenant model. Following immediately upon that, we have a brief recap of the law, especially the law eye for eye and tooth for tooth, the punishments. And that was the big stress at Mount Sinai. 
that God would be the judge of the people and that the law would involve these punishments that God was giving out. If people even touched the mountain, they would be put to death. And here, Mount Sinai is pointed to again by the fact that this man lifted up his hand against the Lord and now he's to be put to death. So this is a stipulation section. And then we come to the Sabbath and judgments. And chapters 25 and 26 are one speech with two parts. The first part has to do with the year of Jubilee and the Sabbath years, obviously fitting in with section number 4. And chapter 26 has to do with the blessings and curses of the covenant. Again, clearly, section 4. And in terms of our little historical survey, these point forward to entering the land. The Jubilee made no sense in the wilderness. They didn't own any land. But the Jubilee and the Sabbath years point forward to the fact that they were supposed to enter the land. Of course, the book of Numbers will show us that they had to wander for 40 years, but that hasn't happened yet. We're in Leviticus. Right now, they anticipate going into the land. And so, both of these sections are really oriented around the land. The Jubilee has to do with the land returning in the 50th year, and if they don't keep God's law, they'll be cast out of the land. Finally, chapter 27, which seems like an appendage to the book of Leviticus, and commentators discuss why it's here and what it means, but basically it has to do with redemption of persons and gifts, and it has to do with the continuity in the kingdom. Once you're in the land, things are dedicated to God, but God also allows you to have them back under certain conditions to make use of them. And I think that this rounds out some themes that have been in the book of Leviticus that are a little bit more technical than we want to get into here. I'll mention them when we get to this chapter. But it more generally points to the administrators of the kingdom and how the kingdom is to function with the tabernacle. Let's look then at chapter 24, verses 1 to 9. Command the sons of Israel that they bring to you clear oil from beaten olives for the lampstand to make a lamp to burn continually. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord continually. It's a perpetual statute. He will keep the lamps in order on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. Now, in my tape series, A New Creation, I argued and demonstrated that the holy place where this lampstand is located was a model of the firmament heavens. The Holy of Holies was the highest heavens, the holy place was the firmament heavens, and the courtyard outside was the mountaintop of the Garden of Eden, the earthly sanctuary. The land about, round about, was the land of Eden, and then outside that were the other lands. Well, this is the firmament heavens, and of course the sun and the moon and the stars rule the firmament heavens. The lampstand made of gold, which gives light in this dark place, because there were no windows, and no light came in naturally, was the sun. As far as this room is concerned, surrounded by angels and a blue curtain, so basically you're in the atmosphere, surrounded by angels when you're in this room. Now you have the sun burning in there, and that is a symbol of heaven. And the sun shines on the earth, and the light from this lampstand shines on the twelve loaves of showbread, which figure the twelve tribes of Israel. Verses 5 to 9, then you will take fine flour and bake twelve cakes of it, Two-tenths and each cake, you will set them in two rows, six on a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord, and then put frankincense on each row, that is, on a little tray, that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, he sets it in order before the Lord continually. Okay, so I think that the symbolism here has to do with heaven and earth. Now, 
Israel was also a heavenly people. They were permitted access to heaven. They were dressed in robes that had four wings to say that they were like cherubim and that they were positioned in the heavenlies when they were obedient. But they were also an earthly people, just as we are. We have access to heaven and we are also on the earth. And here this symbolism indicates that Israel and earthly people are brought into the tabernacle, into heaven, and the sun shines on them. And so this has to do with the restoration of the world and the recreation of the world and with heaven and earth. That's the model that is set forth here in these verses. Then we come to a section that recapitulates the departure from Egypt. That's verses 10 to 12. Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the sons of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp. The son of the Israelite woman, that is the Egyptian son, blasphemed the name and cursed. He did two things. Note that. He did two things. He blasphemed God's name and he cursed. Now the word cursed there means he treated God lightly. They brought him to Moses. They put him in custody so that the command of the Lord might be made clear to them. So it had not been made exactly clear from God what the punishment was for this kind of blasphemy. And then we have... Uh, Mount Sinai passage here, a giving of the law. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Bring the one who cursed outside the camp. Let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Then let the congregation stone him. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, he shall bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. Alien as well as native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So there are two crimes here. One is treating God lightly abusing, you know, the name of God and all this, that sense of cursing, dishonoring with the lips, it says you bear your sin. God will deal with you. It's not a civil crime. Then there is this business of blaspheming the name, which seems in context to mean that this man lifted up his hand and cursed God. I've never seen anybody do that. It's not the same as saying, you know, GD or some of the other things that people say. This was may the Lord be cursed or something like that. It's unclear exactly what was done, but it was some type of direct verbal attack upon God, not just taking his name emptily or in vanity, but a direct verbal assault on God himself. And that, it says, at least in Israel, anybody living in Israel who did that, whether an alien or a member of the congregation, would be put to death. And he was put to death by stoning. Stoning figures the wrath of God. God is the great rock. And in terms of this context, it was in the rock that Moses was hidden when he saw God. And it was the rock that was struck to bring forth water to feed the people. And so rocks falling on a person is a figure for God's judgment. Well, I don't believe we're obligated to put people to death by stoning today because we don't have to keep this symbolism but that was why it was done that way. Not everybody in the Old Testament was stoned to death. There were some crimes that required hanging and other things. But those that required stoning, generally speaking, were those that involved some type of direct blasphemy against God. The way a person was stoned, from what we can tell, he was taken up to a high place and thrown down. That's what they tried to do with Jesus. And then they would throw a huge rock on that person to kill him all at once. And then all the people that were there would walk by and toss a rock on the heap so that there would be a heap of stones there, a permanent memorial to uh, what had happened, a permanent memorial heap of stones that would remind the people for generations not to commit such a crime. Well, that's what God says here uh, was to be the law in Israel. 
certainly shows the seriousness of this. And then the law is summarized. If a man takes the life of a human being, he will surely be put to death. There is no compensation for it. The death penalty is mandatory. One who takes the life of an animal shall make it good life for life. If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, it will be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. This doesn't have to be taken literally. If a person offered to pay money to buy his tooth or eye, he could do so. It would have to be accepted and decided upon, but it didn't have to be inflicted physically, although it could be. Thus, the one who kills an animal shall make it good. The one who kills a man will be put to death. And God says there shall be one standard for you. It will be the same for the stranger as for the native. It's important to note this, especially in the book of Leviticus, which is so concerned with sanctuary law and the laws that are peculiar to Israel as a nation of priests. And God affirms that as regards these open public matters, anybody who chooses to live within the Holy Land and under the protection of God as his God is going to have to keep these laws. The stranger living in the land can eat unclean food. He can eat food that dies by itself. He doesn't have to be under the law for issues of blood, and he's not under the law for childbirth and all the other things. But when it comes to these civil matters, he is under the law. Well, now we come to long section, the fourth section here on Sabbath and Jubilee. And this chapter, chapter 25, seems, again, and I don't go around looking for these things unless they come to me, it seems, again, to break down into this covenant structure. It's not divided into separate speeches, but the order of discussion in the chapter seems to be along the lines of the covenant recreation model. Let's look at it. You have a chart in your notes. One last time. The first seven verses had to do with Sabbath years, and as we saw in chapter 23, the Sabbath itself was the affirmation of God's transcendence. And so, starting off the Sabbath years, while it might fit for other literary reasons, can also fit with this structure. Then we have the Jubilee, verses 8 to 12, which is a clear paragraph, and has to do with returning the land to their families. That can go easily with restructuring. It doesn't have to, but it can. And then we have, in verses 13 to 18, the next paragraph having to do with stipulations, particularly with selling the land. Well... Here we are in an economic area, stipulations on how not to steal and how to deal with money. And it just does seem to be in the third zone of concern. The next paragraph has to do with verses 19 to 22, the land yielding its produce and God's blessing of them, a triple blessing, which again fits the fourth aspect of the covenant recreation model. And then all the rest of the chapters have to do with the redemption of the land and the redemption of slaves, which seems to go very nicely with the idea of succession. So I am inclined to think that the covenant recreation model is once again informing the literary structure of Leviticus and the Jubilee chapter in particular. Well, first of all, we have... Sabbath years, every seventh year they weren't supposed to plant their land and just let everything grow. And anybody who wanted to could eat it. They weren't supposed to maintain their boundaries. People could come through and eat what they wanted in their land. That's because the land belonged to God. And it wasn't because of crop rotation or any theory like that. But it was a way of 
letting the land itself rest because it belonged to God and an affirmation that it was his. Then, uh, second section, they were to count off seven Sabbaths of years, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. And then in that 49th year, you sound the ram's horn on the Day of Atonement and consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a liberty throughout the land. And that's what's on our liberty bell. You ever heard that before? We proclaim liberty throughout the land? Well, that's where they get it. Year of Jubilee. And each will return to his own property, each of you returning to his family. So you go back to your land. If you have sold your land or leased it, then it reverts to you in the 50th year. And as we'll see, that's the basic meaning of the Jubilee. The land reverts to its original owners. And during that year, it's the same as the Sabbath year. You don't cut back your vines or anything. You let it just grow. Let the land just grow. Don't take the weeds out or anything. Let everything grow wild for a year. Then we have the law of the Jubilee, verses 13 to 17. If you make a sale to your friend, actually to verse 18, if you make a sale to your friend or buy from your friend's hand, don't wrong one another, corresponding to the number of years after the Jubilee, you buy from your friend. In other words, the sale of the land needs to be connected with how many years a person will use it. It's actually a form of leasing or renting. And the price of the land is calculated with reference to the Jubilee. In other words, if the Jubilee is coming up in only a few years, then you wouldn't pay as much for use of it. And the climax of this section, you shall thus observe my statutes, keep my judgments so as to carry them out, that you live securely on the land. Then, in case you're worried about what we're going to eat, God says, I will order my blessing for you in the sixth year so that it will bring forth a crop for three years. So you'll have this triple harvest every sixth year that will carry you through the Sabbath, and in the fiftieth year it will carry you through the Jubilee. The rest of the chapter, verses 23 to 55, has to do with the redemption of the Jubilee. Verses 23 to 28 has to do with the redemption of land. The land is mine, says God. You're just aliens and sojourners with me. And you are to provide a redemption for every piece of property. If your countryman becomes poor, then the nearest of kin is to buy back the land for him. And if he has to sell his land to a stranger, to someone that's not in his family, then he has the right to buy it back any time he can come up with the right amount of money. And the amount of money that he has to come back with is simply proportionate to what he sold it for. Uh, if there were 20 years going until the Jubilee, let's say, and you leased your field for those 20 years for $10,000, 10 years later, you wanted to buy it back, then the price would be $5,000 because the person would have used up half of his lease. And he couldn't change the price or go to some market price or anything. It had to be exactly proportionate. And that law is set down here. Then it talks about specific cases. Inside of a wall city, the Jubilee didn't apply. If you had a house inside of a wall city, you could sell your house permanently. You had a redemption right for one year. And after that, it passed permanently to... The purchaser didn't go back in the 50th year. But houses and villages that don't have a wall are considered as part of open fields, and they have redemption rights. Well, how about Levitical cities? The Levites did not have land in Israel, so what about their homes? Well, their homes go back in the Jubilee. <laughs> so there are exceptions and exceptions, and if you really want to get into it and study the details, there's nothing complicated about these laws. They're pretty simple. For ordinary Israelites, the land inside of a city does not revert 
in the 50th year, but for the Levites, it does. Now, what about loans? We have here a section on making loans to people. You're not to take usurious interest from your brother, it says. If he's poor and he needs money, if he needs food to live on, then you loan it to him without interest. Now, that's not to say that you can't loan to a fellow believer in a business loan. But in a charity loan to an impoverished believer, there's to be no interest. And the reason that's mentioned here is because such loans were canceled in the Sabbath year. That's clear from Deuteronomy 15 and Exodus 21. Then we have a section on slavery, verses 39 to 46. We've got a series of things here. If a countryman becomes poor and has to lease off part of his property, now he becomes even poorer and has to borrow money. But if he becomes so poor that he sells himself to you, then he's to be like a hired man and he can work for you until the year of Jubilee. And then in the year of Jubilee, he goes back. Now, it says as regards male and female slaves that you buy from pagan nations, uh, you can keep them permanently. Now, if they become circumcised and part of Israel and save up their money, then they can buy their own freedom. But the Jubilee law does not have reference to them. Now, all this is kind of complicated. Some forms of slavery, if a man went into slavery to pay debts, he was set free in the seventh year. This is talking about another form of slavery. Remember, the biblical idea of a slave is nothing like what we're used to. It just means servitude, some type of being a servant, hiring yourself out. And that's what it says here. A man could hire himself out all the way until the Jubilee. And then finally, it says that these laws apply to the strangers and sojourners in the land. Verses 47 to the end. If the means of a stranger or a sojourner with you become sufficient and a countryman of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell himself to a stranger, then he has redemption rights, same as if he'd sold himself to anybody else. His kinsman can redeem him. This whole thing is under the law. He goes free in the Jubilee even though he has had to sell himself to a stranger. Let me comment just briefly on the New Testament and Jubilee. For a few years, about ten years or so, it's pretty much stopped now. It was very common among certain Christian social thinkers to talk about the Jubilee as a way of restructuring our society so that the rich don't keep getting richer and the poor don't keep getting poorer. Give everybody a new deal every 50 years. That's impossible because the idea here is not to redistribute the land, but for everybody to go back to his original property. The only way to do that would be to tell everybody to divide the land up right now, and then if anybody moves in or becomes an immigrant in future years, they just can't have anything. And anything they buy will be lost every 50 years, and that's not fair. This was a peculiar law for Israel, and it had a symbolic meaning. There are much better ways to take care of the poor primarily through free enterprise, which tends to reward those who work hard and so that the poor can increase their holdings. Nevertheless, the Jubilee did have a particular symbolic meaning, and what it meant was that the land reverts to its original owners when the year of Jubilee comes. Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, verse 19, that the acceptable year of the Lord had come and that he was proclaiming liberty. And what Jesus was saying is the land is now going to revert to its original owners. Satan is going to be cast out, Jubilee has come, and the land will be given back to the sons of Adam. So, it is in the church that the Jubilee is fulfilled, and as the world reverts to Christians and goes back to its original owners, who are the godly, then that is the fulfillment of the Jubilee, definitively in Christ and then progressively in history. We come now to chapter 26, 
which gives us the blessings and curses of the covenant. And this chapter has four sections. It starts off by talking about idolatry, the Sabbath, and the sanctuary. You will not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You will keep my Sabbaths and fear my sanctuary. I am the Lord. What this does is it sets these cursings and blessings in the context of Leviticus. Leviticus is concerned with Israel as a nation of priests, maintaining true religion, maintaining the Sabbath, maintaining the sanctuary, avoiding idols. And it is these things in particular that they are supposed to obey to be blessed, and if they disobey, they'll be cursed. Now, Deuteronomy is, has a much broader perspective. You keep all of the law and you'll be blessed. You break all of the law and you'll be cursed. Here, the zone of concern is more with the religious activities of Israel. So we have the blessings. Your notes give you the three sections here. If you obey me, particularly keep these religious commandments, which are the heart and core of the faith anyway. Then I'll give you rains and good harvest. Secondly, I'll give you peace, and there won't be wild animals and harmful beasts, and you'll chase your enemies, and you won't have famine. And then the third thing God says, verse 11, Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. That is, I won't spit you out. Again, the language of spitting out is here in this section. God won't reject them. And I will walk among you and be your God. But then he says, if you don't obey me, then God will spit them out. I will spit you out. And there are five speeches here, five speeches of curses. And each one multiplies on the other one. The initial curses in verses 14 to 17 have to do with illness, famine, and defeat. If you break my statutes and turn to idols and don't revere the sanctuary and keep the Sabbaths, then I'll appoint over you fevers and consumptions and terrors, and you'll have this sickness, and you'll be struck down before your enemies, and you'll starve, and you'll be hungry. And then he says, verses 18 to 20, if you still don't obey me, then I'll multiply seven times for your sins. And that becomes a refrain. Each time, if they don't repent, then it's seven times worse. Jesus refers to this in the New Testament. He says, if a demon has gone out of a man that wanders in dry places and comes back and finds the house swept, but no one else has taken residence, he brings seven demons worse than himself. So God punishes them, and they're supposed to ask the Holy Spirit into their lives. But if they don't, then the judgment will come back sevenfold. God will send seven times as many demons upon them. So, sevenfold destruction, B, drought and bad harvest. And if they don't repent, then seven times further. That comes to 49. This is 49 times as bad as the initial judgment. And that will be wild animals multiplying against them, verses 21 and 22. And if you still don't repent, God says, then we'll just multiply it by seven again. And whatever seven times 49 is, I guess it's uh, 343. 343 times as bad as the initial judgments. And it will be war leading to plague and to famine. And if you still don't repent, then verses 27 to the end, I'll make it seven times worse. Seven times 343. You figure it out. About 2,200 or so times as bad as the initial judgment. And it will be war that leads to cannibalism and devastation of the land and deportation. This is it. This is what happens in the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations. It's what happens with the fall of Samaria a couple of centuries before that. It's what happens with the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. 
And God says that you will eat the flesh of your sons and of your daughters. And we would find in Lamentations that that's referred to, as well as in Second Kings and the fall of Samaria. And God will lay waste the land and he will cast them out of it so that the land will enjoy its Sabbaths. Again, you see the idea here is religious crimes, religious sins and apostasy is what brings this about. And they will be deported and live in a strange land. But then the chapter ends on a positive note. It says in verses 40 to 45 that if they turn back to God, that he will remember his covenant with them. Verse 42, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and with Isaac and Abraham. I will remember the land and I will bring them back when they repent. So the passage ends with a glorious and positive note about the possibilities for the future. Well, that's the sanctions, you see, positive and negative. And now we come finally to the succession part of what we're looking at here. And it has to do with the redemption of persons and things. Again, redemption, buying back, a restoration being the climactic aspect that we're dealing with. This chapter doesn't seem to fit. It's hard to fit it in. But the general idea here is when you come into the land or even out here in the wilderness and you get in trouble, you know, God brings judgment, all these judgments that we just read about, God brings judgment on you and you vow a vow and you vow something that's very precious to you. What if you really want to keep it and you want to give money instead? Well, you can. And you can redeem what you vow. Or what if you're supposed to bring a sacrifice and for some reason you don't want to offer up this particular animal? Then you can redeem it. And the trespass offering, remember, I may remember, (laughs) way back, several tapes back, trespass offering could always be turned into money and money just given to the tabernacle. Well, here, this is true of other things as well. And the general idea seems to be that life goes on. Things are given to God, but God gives them back to men and they can use them. We have in verses 1 to 8 uh, the price of people. If a man makes a difficult vow and he says, I'll serve the Lord for the rest of my life or I'll give my child to serve the Lord for the rest of my life, for all of his life, then the tabernacle or the temple may not need his services. It may not need his child. Or he may decide that he wants to keep his child. Either way, you can give money in exchange. And then the schedule is set out and there's a chart in your notes. A boy that's from one month to five years old is worth five shekels, tabernacle standard, and so forth. How about animals? Well, verses 9 to 10, if you vow an animal to the Lord, then you can exchange it with an animal that's just as good, and both it and its substitute become holy. That is, if you want to eat the animal that you initially vowed, it is holy and you'll need to offer it as a peace offering and eat it in a holy place. An unclean animal or an animal of the kind that men don't offer as an offering to the Lord, such as deer or gazelle, then the priest values it, and that's the worth of it. And the priests can kill and eat it themselves if it's an edible animal. If it's not, they can sell it. The money will go to the tabernacle. Or if you want to buy it back, then you have to add a fifth part to it. And if you dedicate your house to the Lord, a tabernacle probably doesn't need your house. So the priest values it, says how much he thinks it's worth, and what they're going to try to sell it for. And if you decide you want it back, then you take the selling price and you add a fifth to it to buy it back. 
And how about your fields? Well, because of the Jubilee Law, that's kind of complicated. But basically, in verses 16 to 19, it says if you dedicate your field, then its value is set in proportion to what it produces. And that's set out in verse 16. And it's calculated in terms of the Jubilee, and it goes back to you in the Jubilee. Or if you want to redeem it beforehand, then you redeem it proportionally and add a fifth. You can lose your land permanently. If you don't redeem the field but sell it to another man, then it may no longer be redeemed. The idea here is that you allow somebody else to redeem it. You've dedicated your land to the sanctuary, and the sanctuary is using it. The priests are using it. And then you allow somebody else to redeem it. This is voluntary on your part. Well, if that happens, then it doesn't go back to you in the 50th year, and it doesn't go back to him either. It stays as part of God's property for the priest to use permanently. And then if you happen to be owning somebody else's property and you dedicate it to the Lord, then in the 50th year it will go back to its original owner. That's in verses 22 to 25. If he consecrates to the Lord a field that he's bought that's not part of the field of his own property, then the priest calculates for him the amount of valuation up to the year of Jubilee, and he shall give that valuation as holy to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee the field shall return to the one from whom he bought it. Okay. Makes sense. It's all very logical. Well, how about the firstborn? Well, the firstborn among animals belongs to the Lord. You can't dedicate it to the Lord. Whether ox or sheep, it's the Lord's, and there's no purchasing it or buying it back. If it's an unclean animal, then you can buy it back. If you have a donkey, the firstborn of your donkey, you can redeem by adding a fifth part to it, to its value. Now, verses 28 and 29 deal with something that's hard, any band thing, anything that's put under the ban that the man sets apart to the Lord out of all he has, this is a much stronger kind of a vow. It cannot be sold or redeemed. It was most holy to the Lord. Whether it's man or animal or fields, if it comes under the ban, if it's an extremely strong vow this way, no band, a person who's been set apart among men, shall be ransomed, he shall surely be put to death. That means for certain kinds of capital offenses. Uh, you can't just do this with your own children or something. Now, this may explain Jephthah's daughter. Jephthah put his daughter under the ban, so to speak, by saying he would offer her as a whole burnt sacrifice. Well, obviously he couldn't put her to death, but she did go to the tabernacle and there was no redemption. There was no redemption for her, and she lived out her days in service at the tabernacle. Finally, we have the tithe. Tithe wasn't given in money back in those days. It was given in seed or fruit or herds or whatever. And if you wanted to redeem that, then you had to add a fifth of its value in money. So this is how God made provision for them and for the tabernacle. The tabernacle and the priest did not necessarily need to have all this property. But they could use the money because they had a lot of things they had to buy. They had to provide for the morning and evening sacrifices and everything else. And so to provide continuity into the future, God made these provisions for turning things into money. Well, this completes our survey of Leviticus. It's a complicated and difficult book. I encourage you, if you found this hard, to read Leviticus and listen to these tapes again and again until you become familiar with the outline and structure. And then your mind will be able to give you parallels to the work of Jesus Christ and you'll be able to see how useful some of these concepts can be. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, 
and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.